welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Nat Strawn and Allie. Welcome back to episode 53. Woo! You know, I was like listening back to some of our previous episodes from like season one before we really knew what we were doing. And in our intros, we didn't do our like, welcome back to let's get haunted and i was thinking about it and i was like when did we start doing that because you and i never had a conversation no. about that we just started doing it and like we it's always <laughs> the same rhythm and everything now because the episode that i was listening to was at the mk ultra one right and i was like i started it i was like hey guys welcome back to let's get haunted with your host natalia strawn or whatever and uh, ali and then we just started talking, but I was like, this is so foreign to me. Yeah. Like, when did we start this? You know, I bet you there's a listener out there that can pinpoint the exact date. If you're out there, please drop in the SoundCloud <laughs> comments. When did this start happening? I'm going to make a guess. I feel like it may have started happening around the time that we started recording remotely because it's so hard for us to right. like talk and sync the, yeah yeah because of the delay yeah, on zoom exactly you're probably so right i was thinking about it too we have some defected merch so like about 10 percent of the stuff came back from the factory and it's quote defected but it, it actually seems fine. Most of it just has like a small like piece of paint on a shoulder or like the screen print on the back is like sort of warped. So I felt like I couldn't ship it out to whoever right. ordered it. I would have to like replace it. But we have some left. So maybe we should just start doing giveaways with like the defected Ooh. merch. Be like, get your own custom defected merch <laughs> from oh, Let's Get Haunted. I would fucking love to do a giveaway. Wait, can our first giveaway be whoever can pinpoint when we started doing the intro? like this gets a, a shirt or whatever yeah yeah like i'll, I'll send them a, a hoodie Hell or yeah. a shirt um yeah most likely a hoodie so well how how do we decide it do they comment on uh, instagram on yeah on instagram as soon as the photo dump for episode 53 goes live if you are the right. first person to comment correctly when we started using the weird cadence in our intro then you will be shipped <laughs> a, a piece of merch and we don't even know which piece of merch it's going to be yet right and it will definitely be defective yeah so lucky <laughs> you <laughs> i think that's and honestly awesome. honestly if you have the patience and the time and to not only figure out when we started doing that but also wait until the photo dump happens and then comment on it you know what you deserve it you do that's true because especially lately i feel like my photo dumps have been going up like four <laughs> days late so i'll make an effort i'll make an effort to have the photo dump up on time i think this episode's gonna have an easy photo dump great well sometimes i get triggered because people are like comment or say something they're like hey can you please put up the photo dump like right when it arrives and obviously that's just like uh, right when the episode arrives and obviously that's just like a normal request right right like, that's yeah. just no that's reasonable like a thing that should happen yeah. anyways <laughs> but then i get really annoyed and i'm just like god this stupid podcast is so much work and everyone's so fucking ungrateful and like just use your fucking imagination or wait to listen to the <laughs> Wait to listen to the episode until like three days after so you won't be disappointed. Or how about just fucking wait until the photo dumps on the Instagram and then go to see the episode. But then I'm like, hey, calm down. You're just upset because 
it's work you yeah know? <laughs> yeah but i actually yes but i do really appreciate when people leave comments because every comment that you leave us results in more engagement which means that the yes. algorithm favors us so you can leave hate comments you can leave angry requests that's fine with me um because you're still helping if you the leave algorithm. a hate comment you have to realize that Alyssa finds it and will screenshot it and send it to me and be like, look what this person said. I already researched into what they're talking about and it's unfounded. However, they're just saying this just so you know. And I'm like, thank you for the report, Alyssa. Well, so you will be seen. You will be seen. That is true. And we actually don't really get any hate comments, um, but we do have like one random hater Natalia's talking about this one random hater that keeps making new Twitter <laughs> accounts to like talk to us but so we're not sure like is it the stalker is it a friend of the stalker is it unrelated is this just someone who like found us on their own and just really doesn't like us us. but the person whoever this is they listen to every single episode (laughs) and then they create a new twitter account to tweet at let's get haunted and be like this episode fucking sucked for x y and z reason and then i block them and then they make a new twitter account the next time we upload so if you're out there and you're listening to this honestly congratulations you've have a lot of free time and are very tenacious and that's a dangerous combination but i admire it maybe they're just super fans and they're like i really just wish you know they're so close to just being oh, successful yeah that could be i don't it. know you guys look we're never gonna be successful so hey but we're number 174 that's right on the con comedy podcast list in the united states of america that's and a big fucking deal. That came deal. out with the Spotify wrapped. Yeah, that's a big fucking deal. I think so because too. Because to be top 200 is like amazing. And I was just like laughing so hard with my fiance about it. And I was like, like, how how is our podcast like bootleg and not successful yet successful at the same time and i told Alyssa, i was like i'm gaslit by our podcast like are we good or are we bad because we can't keep sponsors (laughs) like everything always goes wrong yeah always always. no matter what we lose audio multiple times (laughs) some episodes like i especially in season one i remember we would lose like the last half of an episode and just be like, well, right. I guess we're uploading it anyway. Or like this year, here's a secret, you guys. Now that we're getting towards the end of season two, I can let you in on this secret. The episode I did on the Curse of Oak Island, we lost like three quarters of the audio for that episode. <laughs> and we didn't want to re-record it because we had no time in it. We were, This was back when we were like trying to stick really hard to the schedule. And so Natalia yeah. was like, look, I'm just going to make it work. I'm going to edit it. I'm going to make it work. And we're going to upload it. And I like there were people that enjoyed that episode. But there were also a lot of people that were like, what happened? Like, it was like... <laughs> There was like just so much missing audio. Like you could tell it was just like a crazy jump cut. Like, <laughs> like I'm in the middle a, of a mystery. Yeah, I'm like in the middle of being like, and then there was this treasure that was found at the bottom of the all right, Natalia. So how did you feel? And like, what theory do you side with? Hey, I always tell Alyssa we gotta keep them leave them wanting more. And yes. I think that's a great example. Uh I posted this to Twitter. I did a screenshot of a shirt that I made on Zazzle just for the meme. Yes. And it says, uh, ask <laughs> me about the 174th most popular comedy podcast on Spotify in the United States. Guess what, guys? That's us. I can't believe that. And it's because that of you guys. Me... It's because of all of you. It is because of you guys. It is because of you guys. And I know just based off of 
probability there's got to be some celebrity that's listening to this like there's got to be like taylor swift has at least like been recommended this in her spotify and she like didn't listen to it (laughs) but but like i feel like somehow we've like brushed we had to have yeah there has like i feel so like happy too when we see photos of people who listen wearing merch yes. or people who like shout us out that they're listening to the podcast and it's always cool people like we have the coolest most alternative like there's not normies that listen no, to this absolutely not yeah and if you guys if, all have yeah. really good fashion sense like really good <laughs> hair like good, artistic yeah, artistic like awesome clothes creative like, and keep sending us more um i don't know if you guys have noticed this but on our instagram at let's get haunted um if you look at our profile there's a highlights reel and one of the highlights says merch and I anybody who like posts in their story and tags us wearing our merch I automatically put it into that highlight reel so you are forever memorialized Slay. on our profile if you do that yes if you want that <laughs> if you want that life if you don't then like DM me privately and be like take that down and I will do that <laughs> <laughs> amazing if this is your first time to listen by chance and you're like fuck this podcast and about to turn this off because we're not talking about what's in the title you should know that if you skip to 20 minutes in <laughs> our intro will be done yes by the way. correct we will make sure that the intro is done around 20 minutes and speaking of merch we have three size small hoodies left on our website mm-hmm. natalia where mm-hmm. can they go find those let's get haunted dot calm get on there they are not going to last long no they are not at all and also natalia do you want to shout out our donors for this month Ephraim p janine h shelby h lewis w hannah r janine h brielle s Lindsay w femi h matt e rebecca d and jonna h yay thank you guys so much for donating Alyssa. do you have anybody i do i have madison f Ephraim P, Justin M, who was in my fantasy football league and sent us money after I insulted him in the fantasy group chat. Shout out, Justin. Um, <laughs> Jonna H, Audra T. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys. Yeah, the donations really mean a lot and it really helps us. Even if you can only send in like, you know, $4.20, it's we still love it. Yeah. As long as you as long as you send in more than a dollar to PayPal, it will oh, yeah. get it. <laughs> oh, because that's right. Sometimes yeah, sometimes people will send in like 69 cents to PayPal and then it just comes up as $0 because like it costs money to process it. And so then I just think it's spam. <laughs> so <laughs> But yeah, so if you want to <laughs> donate to us, you can Venmo at DogMomUSA, or you can go to our Ko-fi account, which you can visit by going to letsgethaunted.com, clicking on our um, menu bar, and then there will be a button that says donate on the menu bar. And then, or you can Venmo or PayPal Natalia at paypal.me slash natstron or Venmo at natstron or cash app dollar at dollar sign Natalia Strawn. Hell yeah. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you. Thank you, guys. I have a personal haunting for you, Natalia, and you. Are, oh yeah, please. Yeah, you already know it because I texted you, but I, I feel like you were not as baffled by this as I was. So I need some people in the haunted fam to like tell me that I'm that this is like insane. Okay, so I was driving last week, and I have worked near a farm. I like don't want people to know where I work. I work. I work on several different plots of land. 
And one of those plots of land is near a highway. And you know how there's those signs that say like this highway is adopted by blah, blah, blah. And like whatever that right. it's normally like a company or it'll be like Lowe's Home Improvement. Yeah, it'll be like Girl Scouts of America, yeah. like group number five, four, four. Exactly. Something. And then like yeah. basically that organization just like raises money to help clean up that highway every once in a while as I or like pay for repairs, I think is what it is. Um, and I was driving past this farm that I have worked on or near for like five years and I've never noticed this sign before ever. And I turn and I look and it, I like fucking almost stopped my car in the middle of the highway because it said this highway is adopted by the Global Consciousness Project, which is the fucking Randonautica episode I, I did. Yeah, I know. Like, I know. But like, what the fuck? Because I had never heard of that organization prior to this year. I've dr- I must have driven by that sign thousands of times. I don't know. Hundreds of times at least. And I had never, ever read it before. And it's the Global Consciousness Project. Okay, so that was the first fucking insane thing. I like texted Natalia. They're targeting you. I was freaking out. I was like, what is going on? And then the second thing that happened is a couple days after that, I was sitting at my dining room table and I have, I, I love wine, but I can never finish a whole bottle by myself, which is probably a good thing. So like <laughs> I normally will open a bottle and have like a glass or two with dinner if it's like a special occasion. And then I forget about the bottle and I like don't remember it until the next time I'm eating dinner at a special occasion, which could be like a month away. And then I'm like, oh, this wine's bad now. You know, so I just have all these bottles of like half drunk wine. And I was like, okay, it's finally time to like go through these, pour them out, get rid of them. And I pick the first one I fucking pick up, Natalia, on the label. It says grown in the Willamette Valley in giant letters, which is from the uh, the the Happy Happy Valley Valley Dream Dream Survey Survey episode. Yes. What is happening? I don't I told you they're targeting you. But like is this a simulation? Like what is ha- what is going on? Is the matrix glitching you guys? I feel like I'm going insane. <laughs> like this Is it that we've done this podcast for so long that ev- we have an episode about literally <laughs> everything? Okay, it could be. But those are so like okay, my I am I am Charlie from It's Always Sunny in front of the bulletin board right now with all the yarn right. playing the different Pepe yes. Silva stuff. Like to me <laughs> This is, what are the odds? Like two very obscure zero. things that we've covered on the podcast. Yeah, 0.00, you guys. <laughs> Aliens are contacting me. God is trying to tell me something. The Matrix is glitching. Well, what is going on? Yeah. I think if one more thing happens to you, then like we can seriously freak out. Okay. But right now it's it's two things so far. That's so, true. Like, if either one of those things would have happened by themselves, you would have just been like, oh, like that's kind of interesting. Let right. me text Natalia a photo. And then like now that it's the two happened, now we are seeing a pattern, but the pattern won't be confirmed until a third. You know, you're I'm not probably sure if right. that's how math works, but I think I, think, I remember I think, there being something. Yeah, about. threes like good things, <laughs> bad things come in threes. I know that's a saying, but these this doesn't feel bad right. or ominous to me. It's just fucking insane. It seems very ominous to me. Yeah. Oh shit. Well, first of all, anyone who wants to sponsor a highway. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. Second of all, <laughs> that's it. That's the that's only it. thing I have to that's say. That's the first of the last. <laughs> well, guys, comment down below. What do you think this means? Or when the photo dump goes live, leave me a comment telling me what the fuck is happening. Does any? Does nobody else think that's crazy? Like, 
Well, I was trying Alyssa, to tell- they can't answer you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so they all think it's crazy. I think it's crazy. Okay, I tried I- to tell someone about it, and they were just like, okay. <laughs> but the part of the story that you're that you're leaving out, which is the part that I hooked on to the most, is that Alyssa, <laughs> I don't know if you want, you can cut this out if you want. Actually, let me, I'll cut out, <laughs> I'll cut this down to 20 minutes, you guys. I just want you to know that we're at 35 minutes right now, but I do want to say one thing that I don't think I've told Natalia yet. So basically what's been going on is, so I am working on a particular field right now, and this whole fucking year... There have been these people that live in the river bottom, which, by the way, is like a, a protected wetland. And I know what you're thinking, like, Ali, don't go there. Like, don't talk about homeless. Like, this is really tough spot everyone's in because of the economy. I totally agree with you. I am not talking about homeless people. I am talking about someone who is literally running a meth lab. This is confirmed. <laughs> is running a meth lab in the river bottom and living there temporarily to guard his meth stash. How do I know this? Because I'm tired of the police not doing anything every time they come steal stuff. So I went into the river bottom (laughs) and I found him. And he has this giant RV. He has a Ford Explorer. Uh, He has a a makeshift shanty house, which Natalia is talking about because I sent her a photo of it. It's fucking insane. He I went into it. He dug a basement into it. He has a backyard. Into that, into yes. that little tin shack thing? Yes. And he, he like, wow. it has different sections. It has different levels. Like, the, I want to reiterate, this is a protected wetland. And he <laughs> is operating a meth lab out of a shanty house slash RV slash his Ford Explorer. And he right. keeps... Like, whatever birds yeah. they're protecting do not need to be exposed no, to meth. No, this is bad. Like, this is <laughs> everything you could think of is... This is bad. And he keeps breaking onto the property of this farm and stealing shit. So, like, he'll steal... Like, there, of course, fertilizer... I don't know if people know this or not. Fertilizer is considered a hazardous chemical. You can't, like, fucking eat fertilizer. You can't, like... Yeah, you can make bombs out of it. Yeah, you can't, like, put it in your eye and just be fine. So we have to yeah. wear like certain protective equipment when handling fertilizers. He keeps stealing the protective equipment because it can also work for meth manufacturing. He keeps stealing like different tools we have. He takes the copper out of the irrigation system. Like he broke a is bunch that, of- Is it like lucrative? Like, is this like worth it? Like how much does an average meth well, lab if, make? If Breaking Bad taught me anything, it can help you pay for your cancer treatment in America. So it must be making you millions of dollars. <laughs> Because our fucking healthcare system is broken. So, but yeah, so he's stealing all this shit. Okay, I try to do the right thing, which is file a police report online. Because you should never call 911 if it's not an actual emergency. So you go online, you file the report, you say this is what was stolen. Then you wait for them to have time to talk to you, which takes like a week. So finally I hear back from them and they're like, oh, actually we rejected your request to file online because we need you to call. We're only taking reports over the phone now. So then I call over the phone and the lady's like, no, you need to do it online. So then I try to do it online again and I get the same message about needing to call. So then I call and she's like, oh, actually you need to come in in person. So then I go into the police place on, on in person and they're like, oh, she's like, oh, yeah, no, uh, because of COVID, you have to sit in your car, but um, we'll send someone out to you right away. An hour later, the policeman finally comes up to me and he's like giving me shit. He's like, well, maybe you should install a ring camera. And I'm looking at him and I'm like on a farm 
on a like piece of <laughs> land that has no Wi-Fi and no cell service that's in the middle of buttfuck nowhere. Like how, right. sir, that is not practical. You are the police. You were supposed to like. How did you tell him? Were you like, sir, there is a male running an illegal meth lab that lives on the corner of this protected wetland? Like, what did you like? Well, say? so I, I made an Excel spreadsheet of everything that was stolen. <laughs> I took a bunch of pictures of the, did a bunch of property damage. And he was like, I'm telling you right now. Now we're not going to do anything unless you have a video of the person actively taking the items. And I was like, sir, mm. I went into the river bottom and I found my items. I found some of my items strewn about. And I talked to the man who told me that he's making meth. So I like. See, this is where I would get like annoyed. That's just really annoying to me. I hate all that bureaucratic bullshit I with the police too. and I, with anyone. There's with a fucking librarian. I can't stand it. I also like. <laughs> I don't appreciate the police. Just never do anything. So I just never like to involve them. But and then I did involve them and look, right. they didn't do anything. So well, I'll give you guys updates on what happens with the guy that's operating a meth lab in a protected wetland up against um, a piece of property I work on who keeps stealing shit and the police don't care. And if you think that this entire rant was me being insensitive or it triggered you in some way, I don't, I don't really know what to tell you. I've tried. I tried to offer a job. I tried to offer health insurance. I tried to offer a 401k. I tried to offer free safety supplies. I tried to go to the police. I don't really know what else I can do. So if you have any suggestions, let me know. But if you're just going to say, oh, you just got to leave them alone. Fuck the birds and the frogs. Uh, fuck your employees safety. Um, then I like, please don't leave a comment saying that because I, it will trigger me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You guys. And also don't, don't buy your meth from places where they make it in protected wetlands. Get your meth from places that are safe for Correct. the environment yes please yes that's the only I way agree. they're gonna stop we have to we have to partake in cancel culture this one time and cancel protected environment meth labs yeah i agree and you know what this is really just another reason why all drugs should be legalized and taxed and manufactured in safe hygienic um areas so um yeah let's uh let's legalize meth and uh let's get rid of the um illegal meth labs <laughs> all right okay. that's great all right Natalia. i think you should keep in the meth story maybe we'll just take out the part where i say it's only 20 minute intro we'll yeah. just like put a disclaimer maybe if you guys uh, if you guys are hearing this part of it and you're like, what are they talking about? It means I cut everything interesting out because I was worried that the one person who is always on Twitter getting triggered is listening and getting triggered. Good. I'll fight them yeah. while I'm pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Natalia, I have a very haunted topic for you today. Hit me. And it has to, it has, I want to start off by asking you, do you know what a phobia is? Absolutely. It is a fear of something like arachnophobia is a fear of arachnids. Um, yeah, that's the only one I can think of. Right yeah. now. Claustrophobia. No, you're right. A fear <laughs> of small spaces. Perfect. Yes. You just gave two really great examples of a phobia. So according to Zydo.com, a phobia is defined as an irrational or extreme fear of an object, situation, or setting. Phobias trigger an emotional response of anxiety, panic, and excessive fear. Phobias are classified as an anxiety disorder, which is the most common type of mental disorder. 
Together, disorders related to phobias affect approximately 36 million adults in the United States, which is nearly 20% of the population. So that's like a huge percentage of people in the U.S. have a phobia. Natalia, do you have a phobia? Um, just like to have an average life. I don't know what that is called, but to just a like, fear of having an average life. Yeah, like just a fear of like wearing the same basic clothes all the time, having the same boring conversation, not doing anything cool, not leaving a legacy. Like, <laughs> does that sound real? <laughs> so I know these are all like first world problems. It sounds like, but I think that you can have a really cool impactful life no matter where you're from or what you're doing you know like even if you're running an illegal meth lab on a wetland like you can leave your mark you know so my phobia is leaving this world with no legacy or mark got it okay well that's a good phobia um it's not in the top seven phobias around the united states because one of them hobophobia Wow, I just I don't know why I just realized that that's what homophobia means. I guess because like a phobia is supposed to be like an irrational. Well, yeah, but it's because it's supposed to be like a fear that gives you anxiety. And I never I just always thought, oh, homophobic people are assholes. Like I never thought, I like, do they really have a mental disorder? It's like I thought synony- they were just dicks. It's synonymous with just like you're a dick. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, a question for another episode. According to Zydo.com, the following phobias are routinely identified as the most common phobias people deal with around the world. The number one phobia, Natalia, is called triskaidekaphobia. Have you ever heard of that? No. Is that a fear of triscuits? What is that? Very close. It is a fear of the number 13. Oh, I do that just because it's cool, you know? Yeah. In Western culture, this number is considered so unlucky that buildings will skip it when identifying their floors so that there is no floor 13. Roughly 10% of Americans are superstitious about the number 13, and some of these people have an excessive fear of this number. Friday the 13th is considered especially unlucky, so much so that some people will will refuse to get out of the house or even get out of bed on these days. Wow. Okay. Phobia number two. You mentioned it earlier. Claustrophobia. Mm -hmm. Claustrophobia is a fear of being in enclosed areas. If you routinely experience severe anxiety or have a panic attack while in a crowded room or in a small enclosed space, you may have this phobia. Other specific signs of claustrophobia include checking for or standing near exits, avoiding elevators, and avoiding heavy traffic. If the claustrophobia is severe, merely closing a door to your room you are in will trigger the feeling of panic. Interesting. Um, I know. Very interesting. I didn't realize that even like a large room could be considered a small enclosed space, but it I makes sense. I just think that's self-preservation. Like big crowd, you might get human crushed, suffocate to death, get trampled. Right small space mass shooting yeah look for the exits yeah exactly well uh, here's the number three phobia you mentioned this one earlier too Uh, oh no excuse me let me redo that so here's the number three phobia it's called acrophobia not to be confused with arachnophobia this is different it's estimated that five percent of the population suffers from acrophobia which is defined as a severe fear of heights Mm. a certain amount of fear when being up high is normal and natural but an 
An acrophobic has an unrealistic fear of heights. Even standing on a short ladder or being on a high floor in an office building may cause severe anxiety for a person who suffers from acrophobia. Mm. Feeling dizzy or freezing up are two common symptoms. An unpleasant feeling of spinning, known as vertigo, is also a symptom of this disorder. Um, Okay, phobia number four. Nyctophobia. Most kids are afraid of the dark, but many adults are too. In fact, about 11% of the population suffers from an extreme fear of the dark known as nyctophobia. This phobia is commonly associated with poor sleep because you're afraid of the dark. Um, Other symptoms include nausea, dry mouth, and breathlessness. Mm. Along with the fear of simply not being able to see, a nyctophobe often has a persistent fear that something bad will happen to them in the dark. Yeah, that checks out. Also, like you said, like... (laughs) self-preservation it makes sense why that phobia would be bred into some people yeah yeah Yeah. um number five kinophobia you're not going to guess what this one is i couldn't believe that this is one of the top seven phobias kind of is that fear of like your family like kin it's okay you're kind of close it's an extreme fear of dogs like canine kinophobia oh Oh. but i was like shocked by that. that I yeah, believe you think that so? though. Yeah. Because yeah. like I feel like growing up, now I'm an adult so I don't see it as much, but when you're a kid, there's always some kids that are afraid of dogs. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I know some I do know some kids that are afraid of dogs. Um okay, so this phobia may be more common than you think. It affect it affects roughly 5% of the population. Kinophobia is often the result of a traumatic encounter with a dog during childhood. The sufferer may have been chased or bitten by a dog as a child, and extreme anxiety and fear of dogs persist from the incident. Like other animal-related phobias, a fear of dogs is more often experienced by females for some reason. Mm. Um, Okay, we're almost to the end. Phobia number six, astrophobia. If you have an extreme irrational fear of thunder and lightning, you may be stricken with the condition known as astrophobia. <laughs> and an astrophobe often watches the weather report and may go to extreme degrees to change their plans if there is a storm coming. When exposed to lightning and thunder, an astrophobe may hide or curl up in a ball. Chest pain and sweaty palms are common symptoms when these individuals are exposed to lightning and thunder. Research indicates that astrophobia is the third most common phobia. Many dogs and cats also have this phobia. I was going to say that. I was going to say my dog is an astrophobe. Here is the number seven phobia. Aerophobia, which is a fear of flying in planes, helicopters, or other airborne vehicles. This phobia may be related to claustrophobia and acrophobia as it involves being in an enclosed space as well as being up high. It is estimated that as many as 25% of people who fly around the world have this phobia. Symptoms of aerophobia include disorientation, dizziness, and extreme anxiety. And Natalia, do you know what my greatest fear is? Yeah, you're one of those, an aerophobia. Yeah, I fucking hate flying. Hate it. I hate it. You've flown with me many times. I fucking hate flying. Um, I have special medication that my doctor gave to me for when I get on a flight. Um, I have tried everything to get over this fear. I don't know if exposure therapy actually works or not, but that's just like the only thing I've ever heard of. So I like skydiving. No, Um, I force myself to go flying because I just feel like 
I don't want to let a phobia. Yeah, I went skydiving because I was trying to get over it. To the hell? Um, no, uh, no, but you know what's weird? I actually was less afraid of skydiving than I was of just like getting on a commercial flight. Because you were in control skydiving or felt I think, yeah, I think I felt like, look, I'm attached to this person that does this all the time because I did tandem skydiving and like we have a parachute. Right. So the plan's already to fall out of this thing. It's not like an unexpected thing. Totally. Like we're on a plane. Anything could fucking happen, especially like with the stuff that's happened in the past five years on planes. Yes. Yeah. Totally. you get sucked out of the window. Yeah. Oh, man. That story is the, still one of the scariest things I've ever read online. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, just Google woman sucked out of Southwest Airlines flight. This happened very recently and is terrifying. Um. Yeah. So anyway, my point is like, yeah, I try to do all this like exposure therapy to get over my fear of airplanes. And so far it hasn't worked. So I thought, let me try something today. Let me look up a story that is my worst phobia brought to life. Let me research it and let me tell it to you and let me see if this helps me get over my fear of airplanes. Natalia, today we are talking about Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. Wait, is this the one where that they landed in the Andes? No. This is the one that went no. disappeared? Yes, this is the one that disappeared. How is there going to be a story? We never found anything out about it. Oh, Natalia, there is a story here. Let me tell you all about this. Okay, I'm okay. ready. I'm long for the ride. Here we go. On March 8th, 2014, at 12.42 a.m., a Boeing 777-200ER aircraft operated by Malaysia Airlines departed Kuala Lumpur International Airport en route to Beijing Capital International Airport. It was one of two regularly scheduled flights that occurred daily between these two locations. The flight consisted of 31,517 pounds of cargo, 82,000 pounds of jet fuel, 227 passengers, and 12 crew members. Let's start by talking a little bit about the people who were aboard this flight. Okay. So of the 227 passengers, five were children. The rest were adults. 153 of these passengers were Chinese citizens. 38 of the passengers were Malaysian citizens. And the remaining passengers were from the following 12 different countries. Indonesia with seven passengers, Australia with six, India with five, France with four, the United States with three, Iran with two, Ukraine with two, Canada with two, New Zealand with two, the Netherlands with one, Russia with one, and Taiwan with one passenger. As for the 12 crew members, they consisted of 10 flight attendants, all Malaysian, and two pilots in the cockpit. So let's talk a little bit about the pilots. Okay. The tw- the first pilot was a 27-year-old first officer what? named Fari- named Farik Hamid. I know, isn't that crazy? Yeah, 27 is so young. Like, that seems so young, yeah. Um, so 27-year-old first officer Farik Hamid, who was flying the airplane at takeoff. Farik was no stranger to flying, as he had joined the Malaysia Airlines team in 2007 and had accumulated 2,763 hours of flying experience. This flight, however, was especially significant for Farik because it was his last training flight before he would become fully certified as a first officer. Mm. 
As is required for training flights, Farik was accompanied by his trainer, the pilot in command, 53-year-old Zahari Ahmad Shah. Zahari had been flying with Malaysia Airlines since 1981 and had a total of 18,365 hours of flying experience. In fact, Zahari was so accomplished that he was recognized as um, an elite trainer for Malaysia Airlines. He frequently trained um, people that were coming up trying to become first officers, and he was called, quote, an accomplished and well-respected pilot who had zero blemishes on his record. The flight between Kuala Lumpur, am I saying it right? Kuala? Yeah, I mean, that's how I went there on a backpacking trip once a long time ago in college. So maybe I was just a dumbass and saying it wrong the whole time. But I think it's Kuala Lumpur. Kuala? Okay. I'm going to yeah. stick with that. I just... Not I Kuala like a koala from Australia, but like Kuala. Kuala. Okay. The flight between Kuala Lumpur and Beijing normally took less than six hours. And the aircraft was equipped with enough jet fuel to allow for a flight of 7 hours and 31 minutes. The extra fuel was standard procedure, the idea being that in case of an emergency, there would be enough fuel aboard to divert to alternate airports, such as the Jinan Yaokuang International Airport and the Hangzhou Zhaoshan International Airport, both located in China. And you guys, if I'm pronouncing anything wrong, I apologize. I listened to the way that these are pronounced in YouTube videos, but I am American and I am dumb. And so if I mispronounce them, I mean no ill will. Um, okay. So at 12.42 a.m., Flight 370 took off from, one, from runway 32R and was okay. cleared by air traffic control to climb to flight level 180, which is approximately 18,000 feet. Okay. According to an article published by The Atlantic, up in the cockpit that night, while First Officer Farik flew the plane, Captain Zahari handled the radios. This arrangement was standard. Zahari's transmissions, however, were not standard. In fact, they were a bit unusual. At 1.01 a.m., he radioed that they had leveled off at 35,000 feet. A superfluous report in radar-surveilled airspace where the norm is to report leaving an altitude, not arriving at one. And remember, Zahari is the guy who is super experienced. He definitely knows how to do this. So it is, it's weird that he is reporting incorrectly. At 1.08 a.m., the flight crossed the Malaysian coastline and set out across the South China Sea in the direction of Vietnam. Okay. Zahari again reported the plane's level at 35,000 feet. 11 minutes later, as the airplane closed in on a waypoint near the start of Vietnamese air traffic jurisdiction, the controller at Kuala Lumpur Center radioed, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh, 120.9. Good night. This message basically was Kuala Lumpur's air traffic control informing Malaysia Airlines that they were now leaving Malaysian airspace and should immediately check in with Vietnamese air traffic control to confirm their flight position. The okay. phrase Ho Chi Minh 120.9 indicates that the Ho Chi Minh air traffic controller's frequency was 120.9 and that the pilot should immediately switch to that frequency to get into contact with the Vietnamese air traffic control. Okay. Zahari answered this message saying, Good night, Malaysian 370. He did not read back the radio frequency as he should have, but otherwise the transmission sounded normal. It was the last the world would ever hear 
from Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. The pilots never checked in with Ho Chi Minh or answered any of the subsequent attempts to radio them. And there's actually a YouTube video where you can listen to all of these final um, radio transmissions. And so I'm going to put that into the episode right now. recap this flight is a red-eye flight leaving from malaysia on its way to china and then at about um over somewhere over vietnam they stop responding yeah so they take off from you're exactly right they take off from malaysia and at about 10 around like 120 a.m they get the message from air traffic control. I had to read so much about about air traffic control for this episode. It's it's super common. Like you have to check in every once in a while with air traffic control. It's standard procedure no matter where you are in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and air traffic control's responsibility is to make sure that flights are staying on their flight pattern and that they're not getting in the way of other flights that are crisscrossing around the world. So it's you have okay. to like stay in contact it's super important and uh, obviously there's no like one global air traffic control right so right. Um, what happens is as soon as you leave a country's airspace you have to immediately get into contact with the new country's airspace that you're entering into okay 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 so just three minutes after making their final verbal contact with malaysian air traffic control malaysia airlines flight 370 disappeared from radar So to understand the significance of disappearing from radar, you have to understand that there are two different kinds of radar, primary radar and secondary radar. Primary radar is like, like the way I understood it from reading about this is like what you see in movies where there's like that little blip, like that little dot on a screen. So that's primary radar. And it basically just has these simple raw pings that, um, ping off of objects that are in the sky. So if you ever have seen like a war movie, like Pearl Harbor or something and they're like oh there's like this ping that's not supposed to be here it means that there's an aircraft entering our airspace like that's a primary radar and then air traffic control systems use what is known as secondary radar and it is like way more sophisticated and has a lot more information Um, for instance it'll tell you the airplane's identity and the airplane's altitude okay so Okay. okay So five seconds after MH370 crossed into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol representing its transponder dropped from the screens of Malaysian air traffic control radar systems. 
and 37 seconds later, the entire airplane disappeared from secondary radar. The time was 1.21 a.m., 39 minutes after takeoff. Could they do that General, themselves? Like Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so then maybe they're thinking is, it's like a terrorist attack or something. Like why? Right. Like why would it just turn off? So right. generally speaking, there are only two ways for a transponder to stop sending information to a secondary radar. Um, the first is poor weather conditions. So if there's like a ton of clouds or lightning or like a really bad storm, you could temporarily drop off the radar. Or the second option is someone in the cockpit manually switches off the transponder. So since weather in the area was perfect at that time, the only logical explanation seems to be that someone in the cockpit switched off the transponder to hide itself from air traffic control radars. Right. Sketch. Right. Sketch. So the the controller in Kuala Lumpur was dealing with other air traffic elsewhere on the screen um, and just didn't notice that this airplane had dropped from radar because like we just learned, they had already said like, hey, we're passing you off to Vietnamese air traffic. Um, And so by the time the air traffic controller in Malaysia finally did realize that he couldn't see the airplane anymore, he just assumed that the airplane had already switched over to Ho Chi Minh somewhere out beyond his range. The Vietnamese controllers, meanwhile, saw MH370 cross into their airspace and then disappear from their radar. And normally there's like this, there's actually like a formal written agreement where Ho Chi Minh is supposed to inform Kuala Lumpur immediately if an airplane um, is like more than five minutes late checking in with them. But for some reason, they ignored this protocol. And instead, they tried repeatedly to just contact the aircraft. um, But to no avail like they get no answers and so by the time that they pick up the phone to inform Kuala Lumpur 18 minutes had already passed since MH370 had disappeared from the radar screens right so, so they're next, like 15 minutes past right basically. they're like way past what exactly past yeah what they should have exactly done. okay so because of I mean this is just like one in a series of fuck-ups that right. made it that like created this whole situation that we're now in even in modern times regarding this flight so um kuala lumpur's aeronautical rescue coordination center should have been notified within an hour of the disappearance but by 2 30 a.m it had still not been notified so not only did ho chi minh fuck up but also kuala lumpur air traffic control fucked up because even when they finally got the call from ho chi minh they still didn't tell the proper authorities what was going on until everyone's just like we don't want to make a problem out of something that's not right. a problem. But right. Like this has never happened before, so we don't want to like overreact. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so four more hours elapsed before an emergency response had finally begun at six thirty two AM. So now the authorities fuck up after they're finally notified and they take four hours before they even start. How like, long thinking it... about getting emergency systems Shh, wouldn't going. they already be in china by then or something yes you're right so at that moment the airplane should have been landing in beijing okay. um the search for it was initially concentrated in the south china sea between malaysia and vietnam um, and it was an international effort by 34 ships and 28 aircrafts from seven different countries so it was like a huge fucking deal once people finally realized what was going on right However, like, it's unfortunate that they started looking in South China Sea because we would later find out that MH370 was actually nowhere near there. 
And the reason why we found out is because within a matter of days, primary radar records salvaged from air traffic control computers and partially corroborated by secret Malaysian Air Force data revealed that as soon as MH370 disappeared from second radar, it turned sharply right, then immediately turned sharply left, and then immediately turned to the southwest in what has been described as somewhat of like a U-turn fashion. Huh. And then it it flew back across the Malay Peninsula and banked around the island of Penang. Wait, so From how there, are they see, how are they knowing that it did this if it disappeared off of the radar? So this is from a combination of air traffic control radar, so what we have before it dropped off, okay. and also Air Force data. And I'm going to talk more about that Air Force data in a minute. Okay. So it makes this crazy U-turn. It flies back across the Malay Peninsula um, and banked around the island of Penang. From there, it turned right and flew northwest up the Strait of Malacca and out across the Andaman Sea, where it faded beyond radar range into obscurity. Now, Natalia, what do you remember about this event? Because I, all that I remembered when I was looking into this is I just remember, oh, a plane suddenly vanishes from radar and... All of a sudden, nobody knew where it went, so it probably, like, got blown up or flew in, like, plunged into the ocean. Like, do you remember that at all? Yeah, I just remember everyone thought, like, oh, this plane went missing. It's, like, presumed that everyone died because the plane plunged into the ocean, and then they were trying to find the black box. Right. Okay. So apparently the only reason why we think this is because the Malaysian government had apparently attempted to engage in a cover-up right from the very start. So oh. it turns it turns out that even after the flight fell off of radar, it continued to link up intermittently with a geostationary Indian Ocean satellite operated by Inmarsat, a commercial vendor in London, for six hours after the airplane disappeared from the secondary radar. Oh, wow. So so that basically means that there was this satellite in outer space that detected the airplane's location. For, yeah, about six hours after it disappeared from radar, which I had, like, no fucking idea. So we know yeah, what happened crazy. to it after that, So which it, is, I had no idea. So why did it not go to China? Okay, so <laughs> this, I'm get okay, so this meant that the airplane had not suddenly suffered from some catastrophic event is, like, the point I'm trying to get at. Because, right, like it like, was a planned bird, maneuver. Right, right, or perhaps... At the very least, it's not like, oh, this person, like this airplane disappeared from radar on its normal pathway to China and then blew up. You know what I mean? Or it crashed. Like, that's not what happened. So during those six hours, it is presumed to have remained in a high speed, high altitude cruising flight as if everything was normal, just going in the wrong direction. So I'm going to send you some pictures of what the airplane's flight path looked like when we put together all this information. So when you combine the information of all the radar, the Ho Chi Minh radar, the um, Kuala Lumpur radar, and um, air traffic control, and airspace radars, and then also this random satellite. So let me send that to you right now. Okay. All right. I'm seeing what their flight path is supposed to be, which is basically just flying northeast and then north to Beijing from Malaysia. Right. Okay. Now let me show you what they actually did. All right. Now here's what they actually did is they started flying to Beijing and then 
like they left the Malaysian peninsula, but then just a few, about halfway across the South China Sea before they even got to Vietnam, they turned around. Right. Exactly. Back past where they uh, went, went, turned completely around and then just started going past Indonesia straight through like an, just the ocean and it looks like maybe the projected flight path would be around the indonesian peninsula but that doesn't make sense because then why go through penang why not just go straight well i guess they're trying to avoid la- radar this looks like to me like they're trying to avoid land radar or like avoid being seen because like right only avoid being seen by water. people on the ground yeah yeah sketch um and then i sent you i sent you two more that um are recreations put together by that satellite that picked it up after Uh so the last one i sent you you can see like the dots keep going in a straight line where are they going is it going to antarctica what is it doing so you're right it's actually headed towards antarctica is is what it's doing that's oh the God, only thing in that direction nightmare. like you're on a plane right. and you're like i'm going to china and then actually no you're going to antarctica and yeah. you can't do anything about it and you're like i'm right freeze to death i'm not dressed for the occasion <laughs> so <laughs> the satellite which is called the inmarsat um does these things called link-ups or like handshakes is also how they're described. So they're basically electronic blips that routinely connect um, to aircraft locations. So all told, there were seven link-ups. There were two initiated automatically by the airplane and five others initiated automatically by the Inmarsat ground station. And at 2.39 a.m., a satellite phone call was made to the cockpit of, um, of the flight And the phone rang, but nobody answered. Then over four hours later at 7.13 a.m., another phone call was made to the cockpit, but again, the call went unanswered. By 7.24 a.m., while still airborne over the Indian Ocean, the flight was now over an hour late for its scheduled arrival time in Beijing, and the Malaysian government announced that it had lost contact with the airplane. But technically, like, this isn't true. Like, somebody still has contact with the airplane. Like, we know where it is. But for some reason, like, whether it was a cover-up, whether it was just they didn't know uh, that there was this satellite in the sky, um, Malaysian government says that they have no more contact. So the last piece of data from the airplane happened at 8.19 a.m. It was a log-on request sent by the flight to the Inmarsat Satellite Company. This would have only happened for a few reasons, usually due to a power or software failure on the plane. Okay. At this point, the plane had been flying for over 7 hours and 38 minutes. And like we had discussed earlier, it only had enough fuel for approximately 7 hours and 31 minutes. So it's safe to say that this is the point where the plane runs out of fuel and crashes. Oh my gosh, nightmare. Nightmare. So the Inmarsat satellite sent another status request to the airplane at 9.15 a.m., but this time the link-up or handshake went completely unanswered. So that's how we know that it most likely crashed between 8.19 a.m. when it sent that logon request and 9.15 a.m. when the satellite um, unsuccessfully tried to link up to the plane. Do we know that it crashed, though? We just assume that because it ran out of fuel, probably? Yeah. 
we assume that because there's nothing that it could have there's it was in the middle of the Indian Ocean there was nowhere for it to land right so so that's what we're assuming is that it crashed there so I just want to emphasize that linkups are not like radar systems air traffic radars are specifically designed to tell you where an airplane is within a certain range whereas satellite linkups just give you a general range along a curve so we have this general curve range from the Inmarsat satellite. And when we pair that up with the path that the plane was on before it dropped off from the radar, the map should look like this. Um, so Natalia, I'm going to send you the point where it should have run out of fuel and fallen into the It sounds like ocean. a terrorist attack or something. Like this, it's, yeah. But what, where, you know, like what would they be attacking? Right. Why? Like why would they want to fly into the middle of the Indian Ocean? Okay, I see. So, so those two, the last two photos I've sent you, you can see the curve on the first one, and then the last yeah. one shows you the point where it should have crashed. Right. Right. I so, as you pointed out, like, where is it? Like, where, where is it in relation to anything? And why did they do that? Yeah. So it's to the left of Australia, and like you said, it's heading straight to Antarctica. Okay. Okay. So now fast forward on July 29th, 2015, about 16 months after the airplane went missing, a beach cleanup crew on the French island of Réunion came upon a torn piece of airfoil about six feet long that had just washed ashore. So Natalia, I'm going to send you a picture and I want you to describe it to our listeners. It washed up in France. On a, yes, on the French island of Réunion. Uh, 16 months. Oh, okay. I was about to be like, wow, the ocean's so powerful. Stan. Yeah. <laughs> no choice but to stand. Right. We have no choice. All right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm looking at a definite piece of an airplane. It looks like it's a piece of a wing. And it's about, yeah, six foot long and maybe like three or four feet high. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's a significant piece. And I just sent you another picture of what that was determined to be, what piece of the plane it was determined to be. Right. It's that part of the wing that comes down when you're braking. Like it. Yes. It it goes in when the plane is flying. But then like when you start to get lower and go and try to lose altitude, it comes out. Yes, exactly. So that is called a wing flapper on. Um, so the foreman of the beach cleanup crew that found this piece, he called a local radio station and reported what they had found. Uh, I don't know why he did that instead of calling the police. And right. <laughs> it's like, let me um, call the news and get yeah, as much right. as I can out of this. <laughs> right. So a team showed up and quickly determined that the airfoil did belong to part of a Boeing 777 and then and that it was a control surface called a flapperon that is attached to the trailing edge of the wings and then subsequent examination of serial numbers on that uh, piece of airfoil showed that it had come from MH370 or flight 370 <gasps> okay so so it's our yeah, first so clue we, now we have a piece that's our first clue so we know so for a fact this plane went down Probably. We know for a fact, yes, that this plane probably went down or at the very least, like, we know that this piece of airfoil is from that plane. Yeah. So we don't know, maybe, we, maybe we don't know, like, how it got in the ocean, but it seems pretty obvious that it crashed. Yeah. Um, and so now they know that they have their very first clue. So its analysis showed that the landing flaps of the plane were not extended when it crashed, which you pointed out, Natalia, when you're landing, 
you normally extend that piece to slow the plane down. Right. Um, so that you can like glide to a stop. So what does that mean? Um, a lot of people say that that means that the plane probably entered the ocean in a straight vertical dive and that a water landing was never attempted by the pilots. So Sad. it's, I know. So it's like normally when you get on an airplane, you watch these safety videos and they tell you in the event of like a water landing, we have these life rafts and these right. life vests and we'll and like glide down onto the water. These, yeah. Yeah. From these. Yeah. Exits. Exactly. But it looks like the pilots never even tried to do that. They just flew until they ran out of fuel and then nosedived into the water. So... Around this time, a middle-aged dude named Blaine Gibson from Carmel, California, starts to get obsessed with MH370. And basically what happened is his mom, who he was super close with, had just died. And he started watching the news a lot and then started following the search efforts for this airplane. And he's watching the news and he decides, you know what? The world governments are being super fucking inefficient um, because at this point... Everyone is looking along the floor of the ocean using sonar and other techniques. And he's like, this, that doesn't make any sense. We should be looking at wreckage washing ashore. And then he sees this news story that says, hey, a piece of the wreckage was washed ashore. And he's like, I fucking knew it. Government sucks. So he goes and he fucking flies to the island of Réunion and meets with the people who found the flapper on from MH370. Oh this is just a regular ass dude. This is something okay? you would do 100%. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I so I wrote down he fucking Nick Cage the shit out of some yeah. maps. Yes. And he just he like decides where the most logical place for debris to have ended up would be. And he's like, okay, based on like tide patterns and where this piece of wreckage was found, then like the rest of the wreckage should eventually wash up along the coast of Africa. And keep in mind, nobody is taking this guy seriously. Everyone is like kind of laughing at him and making fun right. of him. Um, but he's undeterred. He sells his house. He sells his mom's house. Oh and he goes on a fucking quest across Africa looking for the wreckage from Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. What a legend. What does he think he's going to do? <laughs> Just figure I don't, it, solve I, it? Yeah, I think he was just like Nick caging it. He's like, right. I need to figure out this mystery out. So right. um, he decides to start his quest in Mozambique. And he kind of like, he's literally by himself. I really can't emphasize this enough. And he just starts talking to villagers, asking them where stuff gets washed ashore the most. And he finds this fisherman who's like, oh, I always go to this sandbar to like get buoys and fishing nets mm. that wash ashore. And Gibson's like, okay, here's some money. Take me there. Yeah. Take so me. in, yeah, like, let's do this. So in February of 2016, this fisherman takes Gibson to a sandbank called Paluma off the coast of Mozambique. And after only an hour of searching through debris on the sandbar, he finds a gray triangular scrap of about two feet across that says no step on it. So that's obviously oh, like a piece of an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, he did yeah. it. Oh my gosh. I'm it. so proud of him. Right. So he's like, okay, this is definitely from a plane, but it looks too small to be from a Boeing 777, but I'll take it with me anyway and like turn it over to authorities and have it analyzed. So on the boat ride back to shore, Gibson said, this is a quote from him. So my mind was telling me it's not from the plane, but my heart was telling me it's from the plane. Then we had to take the boat back. And here we get into the personal thing. Two dolphins appeared and helped lead us off that sandbank. 
Dolphins are my mother's spirit animal. When I saw those dolphins, I thought, this is from the missing plane. And guess what? what? The scrap did turn out, it turned out to be a horizontal stabilizer panel from MH370. <gasps> so he was right. Oh my gosh, his mom's ghost is helping him solve this Malaysian mystery? Yes. Wow. I was yes. I was like, why are you telling me this fucking sad story about this hopeless, yeah. <laughs> like, hundreds of people just crashing into the ocean to instant death? But now I understand. This is exciting. <laughs> yes. Okay. So Gibson is like, fuck yes. I knew I was right. I'm going to keep traveling the coast of Africa looking for debris with the help of my mom's ghost. Yes. This should and be a movie. It should be. Okay. And he's still alive. Like, we could probably find him on Facebook right now. We should write um, this movie. We should. And so everywhere he goes, everywhere Gibson goes, he starts telling the locals in areas along the coast. He's like, hey, I'll pay you $40 for any scrap you come across that looks like it's from an airplane. And so word travels super quickly because that exchange rate is really good, obviously. Right. And fast forward to 2020. So this year, around 20 pieces of debris have been confirmed to belong to MH370. And Gibson is responsible for single-handedly finding about a third of those pieces. Is that not the craziest wow. Nick Cage shit you've ever heard in your life? I love that. I mean, also, if someone came to my door and they were like, I'll give you a thousand bucks to find a piece of this, you know, aircraft here in California, like that, I would be super motivated. I would go find it so I could see how yeah, that absolutely. worked. Yeah, well, he also said that in one village, like, was able to point him towards some wreckage that they were like, maybe this is from an airplane. And when he found it, he was like, yeah, this is definitely from an airplane. Here's your 40 bucks. And I guess, like, the exchange rate is so good that the whole town had a week-long party where they just, like, drank and, like, danced oh and had a party. So I was like, that's, that's amazing. Cool. That's yeah. amazing. So even though, okay, but. So even though it may seem really cool that around 20 pieces of wreckage have been found, this is actually really bad, apparently, because Boeing 777s are enormous. And thanks to the satellite data that I showed you, we actually know exactly where the plane should have crashed. Right. But despite a multinational search effort by a bunch of different countries and over $155 million spent trying to find this plane... We basically have nothing. We just have 20 pieces of scrap metal that one guy, like, basically that, like, this one Nick Cage dude found, right? Okay. Okay. So that begets the question, what happened to Malaysian Flight 370? And I want to talk to you about the theories. Right. So what happened? Yes. Okay. That is the question because this story, there have been hundreds of, I, well, maybe not hundreds. I don't want to exaggerate, but there, well, there have certainly been hundreds of news stories about this there have been thousands of articles there have been so many right. theories proposed there have been documentaries like nat geo did a documentary mm -hmm. there's there's so many people who are obsessed with this story because it is the i, I was like reading Weirdest. the statistics well, it's really fucking weird also it ha it's the largest international search effort for a missing airline in world history so we're wow. we're like living through it right now because it's still going but on. But yet this one guy from this small town in California has solved like 75% of it. Right, exactly. So, okay, so there are hundreds of theories about what happened to flight MH370. Some are more far-fetched than others. To really examine the theories, though, we need to talk about who the passengers aboard the flight were. So who were the passengers? 
I already talked about all the different countries people were from. Um, I talked about how many passengers there were. So, uh, but I, I was like trying to look into like, okay, but who was on the flight? Because when authorities were right. trying to figure out what happened, um, the main theory, one of the main theories that was proposed is actually what you said first, Natalia, which is this sounds like a hijacking. So, yeah. so they start looking into who was aboard the flight. Is there anyone who could have been a terrorist or anyone who could have hijacked this plane for political reasons? And this is what they found. So there, as far as like organizations go, there was a group of 19 Chinese artists with six family members and four staff returning from a calligraphy exhibition of their work in Kuala Lumpur. The group was promoting positive relations between China and Malaysia. There was also a group of 20 passengers, 12 of whom were Malaysian and eight of whom were from China. And they were all employees of this company called Freescale Semiconductor. And I want you to remember that company name because we're going to come back to that when we get into the theories. And then mm -hmm. there were also two uh, Iranians aboard the flight that I'm going to talk about right now in the first theory. So the first theory, like I said, was a hijacking. And... This was pretty much the first theory proposed right after the plane disappeared, and it's easy to see why. Hijackings aren't super uncommon, unfortunately, and the first thing most people think of when they hear of a plane traveling off course or losing contact with air traffic control, the first thing you normally think of is a hijacking. And I don't know if yeah. that's just because in the U.S. we're, like, scarred from 9-11 and, like, it was in our face so much right when it happened. Maybe that's why. Um but do you know what Interpol is, Natalia? We've talked about it briefly on um, our show before. Um, international Police something? Yeah. yeah, you're right. It's the Inter yeah. International okay, Criminal Police Organization. And their job is to facilitate worldwide police cooperation and crime control. Its headquarters are in France, and it has seven regional bureaus, world, bureaus worldwide and a national central bureau in all 194 member states, making it the world's largest police organization. Okay, so, wow. so why am I telling you this, and how does Interpol tie into MH370? Well, in the aftermath of the plane's disappearance, Interpol launched an investigation into who was on board the plane to see if a hijacking could have happened. As they started right. looking into the passengers on the flight, they came across something very interesting. Two men were traveling on stolen passports. Okay, those guys are the hijackers. Solved. Perhaps, right? Okay, so um, according to an article written by Aaron Marat on the topic, he writes, quote, the two men said by Interpol to have been traveling on stolen passports on the Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 that mysteriously disappeared on Saturday have been identified as Iranian nationals. A BBC Persia report quotes an Iranian friend of one of the men who says he hosted the pair in Kuala Lumpur after they arrived from Tehran in the days preceding their flight to Beijing. The friend who knew one of the men from his school days in Iran said that the men had brought had bought the fake passports because they wanted to migrate to Europe. However, the pair had seemingly only purchased a one-way ticket from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. This obviously caused suspicion at first because who buys a one-way ticket using a fake passport? But Interpol right. eventually debunked this theory after talking to a number of the men's friends and family and concluded that the two were simply seeking asylum in Europe. Uh, due to violence and economic despair in their home country of Iran. And I do believe that because if you think about hijacking caused by terrorists or terrorism in general, 
like why why has no one taken taken credit for this hijacking it's like Mm. the most famous hijacking why would no organization step up and say hey we did it and we did it to do this because most terrorist organizations take credit for things that like they didn't do so why wouldn't they take credit for something that they did do I'm a little confused. They were trying to find asylum in Europe. So why were they in in Malaysia going to China, though? Apparently, um, Europe, if you try to go from Iran or anywhere in the Middle East into Europe, they have really strict, um, like, like they'll talk, like, uh, what's it called? Border control. Like, they'll talk to you right. when you get off the plane. They'll figure out who you are. They'll really inspect your documents. So what they had done so they is were gonna... they went to Malaysia to buy fake passports that said that they weren't Iranian. And then okay. they were going to fly into Beijing. And then apparently once once they knew it worked, like once they knew their passports mm-hmm. worked, then they were going to get... They were going to go from Beijing to Europe. To Europe, apparently. God, the balls on those people. Yeah. Like, I'm s- so scared to fly with a fake passport. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it must just tell you, like, how desperate, right? Like, how bad things must right. have been in Tehran at the time. Yeah. Yeah. True. So, yeah. True. Um. Okay. So that was theory number one. Theory number two. Hijack, um, a hijacking that brought the plane to an island. So this next theory is kind of a sub theory under the hijacking category. And I do definitely remember seeing this one all over Twitter when the plane first disappeared. Do you remember seeing rumors of the plane being taken to an island? Oh, yeah, there were. Okay, so now I'm thinking also there was like a rumor that maybe they were smuggling planes, like they were smuggling the actual aircraft somewhere else. Yes. Okay, so that was one of them, too. Um, And there are tons of variations on this theory. So, yeah, that was definitely one of them. And then some think that the plane was taken to Christmas Island and then others think that the plane was taken to Afghanistan and the Afghanistan theory apparently comes from an anonymous military source that spoke to a Russian newspaper and the source was quoted as saying quote pilots not guilty plane hijacked unknown terrorists we know the name of the terrorist who gave instructions to pilots the plane is in Afghanistan so this entire whoa wait, wait where'd that gov come from it came from an anonymous military source stationed in afghanistan that spoke to a russian newspaper okay, okay. why though why i don't know do well i'm assuming maybe the military source was a russian military source and so they called mm-hmm. a russian newspaper but i mean it's it's super hard to verify people that want to remain anonymous right like you never know right. what the deal is um okay this next theory so theory number three comes from the employees of freescale semiconductor who were aboard the flight that i mentioned earlier have you ever heard of freescale semiconductor natalia uh a semiconductor like conducting electricity Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah no i don't know what that is Okay, okay so uh this company actually went out of business a year after the plane crashed which is kind of interesting. I guess it could just be a coincidence. But at the time of the crash, Freescale Semiconductor was worth millions of dollars. It was an American semiconductor manufacturer. And I didn't know what a semiconductor was, so I went on dummies.com, which explains things for idiots uh, like myself. And it said that semiconductors are used extensively in electronic circuits. As its name implies, a semiconductor is a material that conducts current, but only partly 
The conductivity of a semiconductor is somewhere between that of an insulator, which has almost no conductivity, and a conductor, which has almost full conductivity. Most semiconductors are crystals made of certain materials, most commonly silicon. And semiconductors are employed in the manufacture of various kinds of electronic devices, including diodes, transistors, and integrated circuits. So mm -hmm. Freescale Semiconductors sold semiconductors mostly to the automotive industry, computer industry, and cell phones. And some people theorize that the group of employees from Freescale Semiconductor were traveling with technological information regarding a new weapon that was to be delivered oh. to the Chinese government in Beijing. And for this reason, the flight was, quote, taken out. Wow. Well, that makes sense. And then that's why the Malaysians would like cover it up maybe right? yeah well and also like i said there was that group of people aboard the flight who were doing art they were like from china doing art in kuala lumpur and their whole goal was to improve relations between the two countries by like right. hey look like let's take part in this art thing together and like let's talk about our differences and so i guess malaysian chinese relations weren't the best so okay that it, there definitely could be a political angle then okay okay the next no i just can't think of like artists being <laughs> like artists being well i guess artists could be terrorists some artists are crazy like that one guy from um uh what's that movie with magoo mr magoo Do you know what i'm talking about blue, no there's blue steel isn't it oh it's, it's about male models yeah uh holy shit people are gonna roast us the prime the guy that's trying to take out the prime minister yeah. of malaysia yeah ben stiller he's an artist yeah yeah why can't i think of <laughs> God the name damn it. oh zoolander Blue steel zoolander. zoolander right okay so cut that out so yeah. <laughs> wait in zoolander though the artist is a terrorist right like the guy that's trying to take out the prime minister of malaysia is a fashion designer correct yeah i think I don't so know. That just proves that theory. <laughs> it That's does. another piece of the pie. Right. Yes, exactly. Well, and also art has always been political in nature. So it doesn't have to be a terrorist. It could just be like a political um, activist situation where like, I don't know, or some political conflict involved. Um, what could be more artistic than terrorism? That's very true. When you think about it. Um, let's just don't think about it too Let's hard. all, I want everyone to tweet that quote. I want it to say, nothing is more artistic <laughs> than terrorism. Natalia Strawn. <laughs> no, don't do it. Don't do it. Do it, guys. Okay, so the next theory <laughs> is an insurance scam, which when I read that, I was like, what the, f this is coming out of left field. But apparently a Malaysian police chief named Khalid Abu Bakar said that authorities were looking into the possibility that someone on the flight had a large life insurance policy and ensured that the plane would crash so that their family could get the money. Oh, that seems like a dick move, though, to take out, like, the Everyone? other hundred people. Yeah. Yeah, like, you couldn't figure out a different way to die. Well, that's... Okay, so that's what I was thinking. But I guess to, like, if we're, like, going along with this theory, if, like, if you commit suicide, of course, your family doesn't get your life insurance policy. So if you're going to kill yourself mm -hmm. to get your family money, you have to make it look like an accident or make it look like you were murdered. Right. Or like natural yes. death. So maybe. Not to be too macabre though. But people do that all the time. And they yeah. crash their car. Yeah. They crash their so. car. 
or yeah drive yeah, off a so cliff. why crash a plane with like hundreds of people and if you're such a good person that you want your family to have your life insurance that you're like willing to lay down your life for that i don't think you would be willing to take out other people for no reason so I, i'm gonna say i don't believe in that one right okay so let's let's eliminate that one then the next theory is capture by the united states um, apparently some what? yeah some speculate that the plane may have landed at the u.s military base on the remote <gasps> island of diego garcia a small coral atoll in the indian ocean and actually oh so let me send you a picture of um diego diego and then, garcia and then that guy that's from carmel is just like planted or like just, it's just a story to make it look like the plane actually crashed. Or somebody like threw wreckage from the plane into the ocean and the guy like really did find it using his maps. Okay, so let me show you. I'm trying to find but how oh, I guess after the plane lands, then they would take it apart and throw it into the ocean. Okay. Diego okay, I'm seeing Diego Garcia is basically right underneath the Maldives. Mm-hmm. pretty much yes underneath india oh that's where the that island is i always wondered because like a bunch of celebrities always go there to the maldives maldives whatever it's called uh-huh and i wondered where it was and now i know well now it's we know right above this show is diego so, garcia is yeah it's so educational so this show mm-hmm. it really is okay so i'm looking at another picture it's of a runway on a haunted island mm-hmm. so basically if you compare that map that I just sent you of where Diego Garcia is like compare that to the flight path map yeah it's like literally right it's like literally right there okay yeah okay and it has a runway so that's why a lot of people think like okay let's say this plane was hijacked okay it doesn't have to be by a terrorist organization it could be by or what we traditionally think of as a terrorist organization it could be by the cia it could be by some political party um but where would it go because we know that it's pinging off this in this area and right approximately where it would have lost um contact with that satellite is in the general area of this island so where like you had said okay well if it's a hijacking why are they going to fucking Antarctica? Well, maybe they weren't yeah. going to Antarctica. Maybe they were going to Diego. I don't know. Maybe there was some sort of sensitive stuff on the plane. Right. You know? Yeah. Maybe the CIA like this wanted microchip something. microchip or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Something in the cargo hold. Exactly. Ooh, I'm so glad you said a that. A Dybbuk box. We're going to talk. Ooh, it, it could have been a Dybbuk box or it might not be a <laughs> Dybbuk box, but we will talk about what was in the cargo hold shortly. Okay. So... The next theory, and maybe the most popular one, is a suicide, a murder-suicide. And basically, a lot of people think the pilot intentionally did this. And there are a couple of reasons why people think this. The first is that the pilot, Zahir, actually ordered two extra hours worth of fuel for the flight at the last minute. Um, And... Some people say, no, it's not that he ordered it at the last minute. It's that there should have been extra fuel anyway in case the plane needed an emergency landing. Then he noticed that there wasn't any fuel, so he ordered it. And so, yeah, it looks like he ordered it at the last minute, but actually he was just being safe. Um, mm-hmm. But also, let's go back to why was the transponder seemingly manually turned off? That indicates right. that someone had Foul to be play. in the cockpit. Cockpit, Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, also, why did the plane make such erratic movements in the sky? Could the pilots have been wrestling over the controls? Like, you know, if you're going to mm. make an emergency landing, I talked about those two airfields in China that were um, were like the standard emergency landing airfields that someone taking off from Kuala Lumpur would land at if there was a problem. Instead of doing right. that, they like turn right, then turn left, then go to the south and then go like skip across an island. Yeah. So some people say that looks like the pilots are wrestling over the controls. And many, many of the theories point to the senior pilot aboard the plane, Zahari uh, Ahmad Shah. So let's look into a little more who he was. He was married. He had three children. He lived in a luxury gated community. He was described as a passionate cook and a keen fisherman. He loved being a pilot and he even owned a state of the art flight simulator in his home so that he could practice flying during his off time. And by all accounts, he seemed to have been living the perfect life. However, a friend of Zahari who gave an anonymous interview after the crash was quoted as saying the following. It doesn't make any sense. It's hard to reconcile with the man I knew, but it's the necessary conclusion. I think he flew the plane into the ocean. As, as a senior officer and examiner, it would have been easy to divert co-pilot Farik Abdul Hamid, 27, out of the cockpit and then lock the door. All he had to say was, hey, go check on something in the cabin, and the guy would have been gone. The fellow pilot speculated that the mental state of Shaw's could have been a, contribu a contributing factor to his decision. Married Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah, 53, sent 26-year-old sisters. This is like kind of salacious gossip, but is also kind of funny. He apparently was following these twin sisters on Instagram right. and leaving like really inappropriate comments on their Instagram <laughs> account. I'm going to send you a picture of what these girls look like. They're like, they're just really pretty. Okay. I'm send it to you. There's nothing like creepy yes but there's nothing that unexpected about an older man leaving yes yeah messages on two hot girls instagram page yeah i agree I, so i just sent you the picture i want you to describe it these are two influencers oh yeah these are just two hot perfectly symmetrical perfect skin perfect hair <laughs> girls yeah. with perfect smiles laughing smiling in front of like a seaplane they like are just yeah, the portrait of, you know, we say like a American girl next door. Yeah, exactly. And he, but okay, so you're right. Like, it's not that weird, like a middle-aged dude leaving weird comments on a hot girl's profile. Like, nothing new or groundbreaking. Yeah. But he apparently Facebook messaged them 97 times in the month leading up to this flight. And he was sending them like sexually suggestive messages and on one occasion for example he commented under their pictures um one of them was like wearing a bathrobe and he goes oh just showered like wish i was there um and so just like kind of gross right like right and, and like just too obvious man like yeah you gotta say something like wow that's a beautiful robe you know right and in, like, and also to send someone 97 facebook messages like that's beyond perverted that's just like you're fucking weird like what are obsessed. you doing maybe yeah. he was going to china to like see these two girls oh. and was acting hella crazy and was like yeah i'm gonna run this plane into their house because they didn't respond to my poke on facebook and then the 27 <laughs> year old is like no that's fucking weird i'm turning this plane back around oh shit. and then there was a battle 
Honestly, that is a really good theory. Theory. New theory. New theory proposed by Natalia. And he also repeatedly messaged the girls asking them when they would be coming to his hometown, despite obviously them ignoring him because they don't fucking know him. And Zahari also used his Facebook to call Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak a, quote, moron. And some people claim (laughs) that the day that this flight took off, this flight was a red eye. It took off a a little bit past midnight. Um, Apparently, the day before that, that flight, he had been at like this is unconfirmed but i read one source that said it was him another source that said they couldn't confirm if it was him he attended a hearing for the former prime minister who's in jail for like being corrupt he had apparently attended a hearing in support of this guy that was in jail okay okay so okay um he also slammed the government which owned the airline he flew for and zahari urged his followers there is a rebel in each and every one of us it's time to let it out. What? I don't know. Aviation expert Jeffrey Thomas said that in most cases, a pilot would be fired for this type of political rant. He told Australia's Daily Telegraph, it should have raised serious alarm bells with the airline that you have someone flying who has such a strong anti-government view when the government owns your airline. If a Qantas pilot did something like that, he would have been spoken to and grounded. Here's a... um, Okay, so I sent you a picture of those twin girls. And then in 2019, Zahari's wife, whose name is Faza, oh, Faiza Kanum, she came out and gave an interview about her husband where she said the following. She told the teams investigating the aviation mystery that her husband had worryingly become distracted and withdrawn as their marriage crumbled in the days leading up to the flight. Although no suicide note was ever found, nor has any motivation been established, police are continuing their inquiries into the pilot and his state of mind before the incident. Fazai revealed how her husband always spent time alone in his room with the flight simulator that he had built himself. Fazai said he just treated he just retreated into a shell in the months leading up to the flight. The pilot's daughter has also raised some alarming questions about the state of his mind as he was reportedly in emotional turmoil over the impending breakup of his marriage. Zahari had refused Mm. pleas to attend marriage counseling sessions to improve the relationship and is said to have had several extramarital affairs. Three weeks after the flight went missing, it was revealed by Malaysian investigators that Zahari could have deliberately steered the Boeing 777 off course. And his daughter, Aisha Zahari, 28, said during her final conversation with her dad, she barely recognized him. She said, he wasn't the father I knew. He seemed disturbed and lost in a world of his own. Faiza and Aisha, along with other family members, were interviewed in detail by police in Kuala Lumpur. They don't think he was responsible for the plane's disappearance, despite his unusual behavior. Faiza, who was just 16 when she first met Zahari, broke down repeatedly during two lengthy interviews with police. One of the interviews lasted more than four hours. She said, I found him distant and difficult to understand. He was always just hanging out in his flight simulator and ignoring the rest of us. Aisha said her father spoke to her about his marital problems and told her he didn't think that they could reconcile. He also asked her how she would feel if her parents got a divorce. Okay, so I keep mentioning this flight simulator. Yeah. So apparently authorities have been looking into whether or not he actually rehearsed the crash on the flight simulator before right. he 
took off. So U.S. officials believe that this is the most likely explanation, that someone in the cockpit of Flight 370 reprogrammed the aircraft's autopilot to travel south across the Indian Ocean, and police searched the homes of the pilots. They seized financial records for all 12 crew members, um, bank statements, credit card bills, mortgage documents. Like, they were trying to figure out, like, who would have had a motive. And the only person they can figure out is this pilot who was, like, kind of a creepy old dude online having a bunch of affairs um, in the middle of getting a divorce and was spending all of his time in his flight simulator. And media reports claim that the Malaysian police have identified Captain Zahari as the prime suspect um, if human intervention were eventually proven to be the cause. And the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation reconstructed the deleted data from Captain Zahari's home flight simulator. But a Malaysian government spokesman indicated that, quote, nothing sinister had been found on it. However, in 2016, a leaked American document stated that a route on the pilot's home flight simulator closely matched the projected flight over the Indian Ocean and was found during the FBI analysis of the flight simulator computer hard drive. And this was later confirmed by the Aviation Bureau. But this, the Bureau is, like, stressing, oh, but this doesn't mean anything. This doesn't necessarily mean that, like, he crashed the plane. It just means that he flew the exact same flight path in his simulator. Yeah, but what are the odds? Because that flight path was, like, literally going to nowhere. Exactly. To Antarctica. Exactly. And it's it's just really weird. Like, I don't know why people are downplaying this. I can't really figure out why. Like, is this a cover-up? I don't. I don't understand, though, if he's going to commit suicide, just have the plane go down in the ocean, you know, like immediately, like or or make the plane go down on land. Why, like, wait until the plane basically runs out of gas? Right. Well, I was thinking about that, too. And there have been instances throughout history where pilots there aren't very many of them, thank God. But there have been a couple where pilots have intentionally crashed into mountains um, flying their commercial flights. So everyone on board dies. Um, And I was thinking about it like, okay, maybe that weird flight pattern is like maybe he was wrestling over the controls with this young pilot, like knocks the young pilot unconscious. And then he's flying straight ahead, like contemplating, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? And then eventually runs out of fuel in the middle of nowhere. Or maybe he intentionally flew into the middle of nowhere so that if he did have second thoughts, he wouldn't be able to land. Right. Okay. I don't know. But okay. Sad. Very sad. Um, Did you know, though, that this pilot actually had a YouTube channel? What? He had a YouTube I'm channel. I'm not surprised. Yeah. If he's following influencers on Instagram, I'm not Exactly. Surprised. So he had this YouTube channel where he showed people tips and tricks about how to fix things around the house. I don't know, like, why I find was this it, fascinating, but I do. Um, Was it, like... A banger like was it good he only had like five videos i'll upload one to the instagram i'm not gonna make you watch it because it's literally just him being like oh i bought this uh air conditioning unit and um figured out that uh, you could make it run more efficiently if you do this to it and it's like him like basically macgyvering this air conditioning unit to run more efficiently so i don't know i mean the fact that his daughter and his wife both are saying kind of like i think my dad could be capable of having the plane go down intentionally though does hold some merit like that like you don't you know you don't say that about your family right yeah yeah nobody would want to put blame on their loved one 
like for yeah, no reason exactly yeah okay so that is um one of the theories and then we'll get into the last couple theories so fire aboard the aircraft um this theory says that a blaze killed everyone but burned out before damage before damaging the exterior of the plane this would explain why the aircraft on autopilot flew a long distance off course. And there were also several mm. purported eyewitnesses who claimed to have seen an airplane on fire in the sky that day, um, which to me seems like a big fucking deal. Like, yeah, it, it, like if you just see an airplane flying in the sky on fire, I don't like that seems like um, important you, information. You're just like, huh, must have not been must have not been important. Yeah. Right. You like. Know? weird so they've they've got it under control right, i'm there. sure it's they yeah what can i do to be like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so the news media reported several sightings of an aircraft fitting the description of the missing boeing 777 for example on march 19th 2014 cnn reported that witnesses including fishermen an oil rig worker and people on the kuda huvaru atoll in the maldives saw the missing airliner fly over them a fisherman claimed to have seen an unusually low-flying aircraft off the coast of Kota Baru, while an oil rig worker working 186 miles southeast of Vung Tau claimed he saw a, quote, burning object in the sky that morning, a claim credible enough for the Vietnamese authorities to send a search and rescue mission. An Indonesian fisherman reported witnessing an aircraft crash near the Malacca Straits. Three months later, the Daily Telegraph reported that a British woman sailing in the Indian Ocean claimed to have also seen an aircraft on fire that day. What? Well, that sounds like... <laughs> sounds like something was on maybe fire. Maybe the aircraft was on fire. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Either that or, like, these people just wanted to insert themselves into an interesting story. I don't know. Right. Um, okay. <sighs> next theory. A power interruption. The SATCOM link functioned normally from pre-flight beginning at midnight until it responded to a ground-to-air ACARS message with an acknowledged message at 107. Ground-to-air ACARS messages continued to be transmitted to Flight 370 until Inmarsat's network sent multiple requests for acknowledged messages at 203 without a response from the aircraft. At some time between 107 and 203, power was lost to the SDU. At 225, the aircraft's SDU sent that logon request that I talked about. And it is not, yes. not common for a logon request to be made in flight, but it could occur for a couple of reasons that I talked to you about earlier. And an analysis of the characteristics and timing of these requests do suggest that a power interruption in flight is the most likely culprit. And the power interruption was not due to an engine flame out. Um, so it must have been the result of manually switching off the aircraft's electrical system. So some people think that it didn't crash because it ran out of fuel. It crashed because the pilot manually switched off all of the electrical systems at that time. Yeah, I mean, maybe he was trying to cover his bases, so he switched off all the electrical. He turned off the radar. He set it on fire and then just <laughs> let it go yeah i mean that theory sounds as likely as all of these other ones i've just said um the next theory is unresponsive crew or hypoxia and this theory comes from an analysis um comparing the evidence available for flight 370 with three categories of, of accident 
an in-flight upset, a glide event, which would be like engine failure, or an unresponsive crew or hypoxia event. And this um, study concluded that an unresponsive crew or hypoxia event best fit the available evidence for the five-hour period of the flight as it traveled south over the Indian Ocean without communication or significant deviation in its track, likely on autopilot. So when you get on a flight, um, obviously everybody knows this, I think, you have like um, pressurized cabins, right? But if the pressure, right. if the cabin depressurizes, you have those oxygen masks that drop so that you don't die and you can breathe. Um, mm -hmm. apparently there's something that can happen on flights that has happened before where the oxygen levels and the pressurization of the cabin gets out of whack, but everyone is just kind of put into a state of like they're asleep because there's not enough oxygen. Okay. So they think, okay, maybe the, like the oxygen levels were slowly dropping. And so the pilots were confused and they were trying to do a maneuver that would get them on the ground. But And that's why they did that weird U-turn, because they were confused. But then by the time they straightened out, they all had fallen asleep. And so the plane just went on autopilot to its death. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like it's... Uh, yeah, I don't like that. I don't think that's for a few... Yeah, just, just because there's so many people on there that there would be someone who's like, this is wrong. Yeah, or... I don't know. Or someone would have put on their oxygen mask, right? You would think. Yeah. And then, yeah. Also, I just really like this plane on fire one. And that doesn't make sense if the plane's on fire. Yeah. Okay. So talking about the plane on fire, some people think that a meteor struck the plane and that that's why it was on what? fire and that it was just like flying on fire for hours until it hit the ocean. And there's actually before you, okay, before you roll your eyes. There was a meteor in the area where the plane is thought to have gone down. But this theory still doesn't explain the weird flight pattern. It just might explain what caused yeah. the plane to finally crash. The weird flight pattern is human to me. Like, it it seems like the turning off of the radio and the signing in to the um, satellite. Like, those things just seem like human error to me. Right. Like, intentional human error. So uh, my theory that I'm still sticking with is the pilot had something to do with it or like a terrorist like it had or or like a terrorist situation or like there's you know like a hitman taking someone out like I think it was human driven okay so like human fault so you know how earlier you said like what could have been in the cargo maybe there was something in the cargo hold that was yeah. important okay apparently this flight was transporting 487 pounds of lithium lithium ion batteries. And some people think, okay, these batteries, which apparently were like not safely stored, could have erupted into flames and it could have basically exploded the the airplane. It could have like turned the airplane into a flying bomb. Oh. Uh, well, that makes sense to me. I know those batteries are super flammable. Right, exactly. Like, we hear all the time about, like, there was that whole thing then, where cell phones were catching on fire from the batteries. Right. Wouldn't the wreckage show signs of trauma from an explosion then? Well, they've never found the actual wreckage. They've only found about 20 pieces of, like, small pieces of the plane. Right, but if there was an, ex yeah, I mean, I just feel like that big piece the wing 
or right. the the flapper whatever it was flapper on there would have been more evidence of like an explosion i don't know i yeah. mean i don't know enough about plane wreckage i'm just spitballing yeah. here well I, I don't know there's too many theories Alyssa. i know this is too many theories well i'm in the last two theories now the second to last one <laughs> is alien abduction uh okay okay and then the last one there's like no evidence for alien abduction so i can't really like expand upon that and then the last one is the curse of malaysian airlines many people pointed out that this is not the first malaysian flight nor is it the last to go down and that perhaps the airline has been cursed by some unseen forces or dark magic and oh, that's scary. there is actually quite a bit of evidence for this one. So MH17 was a flight that took off July 17th, 2014. And it was the one that was shot out of the sky by a missile. Do you remember that one? I remember that. Yes. Okay. So that happened after MH370 went down, which is the one that this episode is about. So like I said, it's not even the last flight to have gone down. And let me show you some pictures of MH17. I mean, it sounds like the airline is definitely cursed. Like, whether or not that guy wanted to commit suicide on your airline, it's because your airline's cursed, right? Yeah, you would. I mean, it it's, all goes together. It's too many. So I just sent you, um, it's a BuzzFeed News article, but basically the only thing I want you to see is if you want to read the headline and then look at the picture, which is at the top. It says, Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 passenger joked on Facebook, if it disappears, this is what it looks like. And then you can scroll down and see it. And that flight did disappear. And it's... But oh they found God. but they found that it was shot down out of the sky by a missile. But I just everybody thought died. that was like fucking haunted. Yeah, everybody fucking died. Um, That's so sad. I know. Um, so then, like I, so the, like I said, MH17 shot out of the sky by a missile. MH370 disappears on its way to Beijing, which is our current story. And if you go back, you can actually find a bunch of other examples of Malaysian Airlines flights going missing. So December 4th of 1977 is speculated to be the beginning of the curse. And the curse began when a plane operated by Malaysian Airlines system, the flag carrier arm of Malaysia Airlines, was hijacked and crashed, killing all 100 people on board. Flight 653, a Boeing 737-200, was heading for the Malaysian capital, Kuala Lumpur, but it was hijacked as soon as it reached its cruising altitude and diverted to Singapore. However, it crashed in the Malaysian village of Tanjung Kupang with all 93 passengers and seven crew members killed instantly. The mystery surrounding the hijacking and crash still remain unsolved. Okay. Then December 18th, 1983... What? Malaysian Airlines System Flight 684, on its way back from Singapore, crashed just over a mile short of the runway in Subang. The crash did not cause any deaths, but completely wrecked the Airbus 8300B4, which had been leased from Scandinavian Airlines. An investigation revealed the probable cause to be an error made by the pilot, who had neglected to monitor descent rate properly during poor visibility caused by heavy rain. Okay. Curse. Uh, curse. December 15th, 1995, 34 people were killed when the pilot of a Malaysian Airlines Flight 2133 misjudged the landing, touching down too far along the runway at Tawau Airport. The plane crashed into a shanty town as the pilot lost control. Only 15 <gasps> oh. of the passengers and crew on board survived to tell the tale. 
on March 5th. Curse. Curse. On March 15th, 2000, Malaysia Airlines Flight 85 and Airbus 8330-300 was being unloaded at Kuala Lumpur when a highly corrosive chemical called waxyl chloride leaked from canisters. The toxic liquid caused serious damage to the fuselage, putting an end to the five-year-old aircraft's flying days. On August 1st, 2005, on August 1st, 2005, as Malaysia Airlines Flight 124 soared at 38,000 feet on its way from Perth to Kuala Lumpur, on a faulty accelerometer caused a malfunction in the, in the plane's air data equipment. With the air data inertial reference unit commanding changes of altitude, the crew had no choice than to override it, turn it around, and land it back at Perth. So Curse. Yes, curse. So fucking insane it seems like this shit is cursed because air like aviation disasters are actually really few and far between so the fact that there have been so many with malaysian airlines flights kind of makes it seem like this is a curse it no it makes it 100 percent confirmed a curse right and i've even read no other explanation None of the other theories have as much evidence to back it up as this one. And well, <laughs> even further backing it up, I was reading an article that had some anonymous sources that claimed to be family members of some of the people who died in Flight 370. And a couple of them said that they had received messages from beyond the grave from their loved ones saying <gasps> that the flight was cursed. That it was like a doomed That's flight. Scary. Like I have the chills. second I know, like the second they got on it and the the doors closed, that everyone knew it was like a doomed cursed <gasps> flight. Oh my gosh. That makes me so nervous. I know, right? So well, I was oh. never afraid to fly, but now I am. So I guess did I solve my fear of flying? No. Um, no, I did I not. Know. I think you just made it a lot worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but so I guess in conclusion. Over $160 million have been spent scouring 4.6 million square kilometers of ocean, but the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 and the 239 people aboard remains a mystery still to this day. The multinational search effort is the largest in aviation history, but only a mere 20 pieces of aircraft debris have ever been found. And they weren't even found by a formal like organization. It was found by a Nick Cage. Right. And the yeah. the prime <laughs> the prime minister of Malaysia has repeatedly declined to comment on the aviation disaster. The only thing that he has ever said on record is, "quote The flight disappeared over the Indian Ocean." Because he knows it was cursed. I don't. I I mean, was it cursed? Was it a planned hijacking? Was it like a sacrificial lamb because it was carrying some sort of information that was going to be sent to China? I mean. I mean, any one of those because it was cursed, though. Right. Yeah, you know? that's true. You're right. It could be any of them. But at the end of the day, it still means it was cursed. So, Natalia, my question for you is, which of these theories do you think is the most plausible? Do you think it was a fire, hypoxia, a fight between the two pilots, the pilot committing a murder-suicide? Do you think it was a curse? Do you think it was a meteorite? Do you think the U.S. government took it and landed it on that that island called Diego? Like, what do you think happened? I think it could have been any of those, but the umbrella cause is curse. Yeah. Like, the flight was doomed, and therefore any of those things could have happened. I'm not sure which one, because all of them seem like somewhat they could have happened, but... 
I definitely think there that was a cursed flight. Yeah, I definitely so agree with the you. Last theory. Yeah, I definitely think it was yeah. cursed. I'm, I mean, the part where like family members said that they like heard messages from their loved ones about as soon as the you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of like purgatory like you you think you're getting on a plane and then the flight just like never ends and you never reach your destination and it turns out my heart goes out to all of the victims and family from the this flight and all of these cursed flights yeah from malaysia air definitely i mean i think it's time for malaysia air to like pack it up i think all you have to you need to shut down and restart as a new airline that is not cursed. <laughs> That's what I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or they need to have anti-curse devices implanted into their That's a good point. Planes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, the- wow, Alyssa, that's a really fucked up story. Yeah. And I just kept getting more sad. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> fucking sad. Um it's kind of a ghostly story. It has maybe a paranormal aspect to it. More than anything, it's just like this crazy unsolved mystery that I've always heard about but never really looked into before. So I thought I would I would research into it because I always see it on like the top 10 list when you're like Googling unsolved mysteries. I always yeah. see it. And I was like, huh, I wonder right. if there's like more information that I haven't heard about it. Well, definitely, I feel like I know a lot about it now. So thank you yeah. for enlightening me on this because I didn't realize, like, how much foul play was at, like, I, it, they kind of just made it on the news, at least in the news that I saw, seem like it just went down, it was a mistake, no one knows, and then after a while there was like, well, maybe it was a terrorist attack, but then, no, 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 it was just a mistake. You right, know? yeah. I don't know. It definitely so, seems like I kind of find it hard to believe that Malay- the Malaysian government doesn't know what happened just because it seems like they re- are refusing to comment on it and also like took forever to tell people where it went. You know what I mean? Like took them forever to launch an emergency response. I don't know. I kind of find it hard to believe that they don't know what happened. Maybe they were talking to the guy, like maybe the pilot called in and he was like, hey, I have all these people hostage or someone called in. And if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to kill them all. And they were just like, we don't negotiate with terrorists by Felicia. Right. And then they did what they said they were going to do and they killed everyone on board. And the government is just not going to say anything about it because it makes them look bad. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's so many instances of stuff like that happening with so many governments around the world. So... I don't know. I just right. really hope that they find the actual wreckage of the plane because it is weird that they've never found it. And if they can find it and then they can get the black box and see if there's any information on there. Well, or another theory is that the plane did go down, but it went down on like a really tiny island near one. And then some survivors are like living in parts of the fuselage on a tiny island and they're like all talking right now just like should should we just give up and the other one's like no man like they're we're gonna make a new life on this island and we're you know this everything happens for a reason and the other guy's like oh i miss my <laughs> wife and kids they're like your wife and kids think you're dead everyone you know thinks you're dead right and it's like a really dramatic movie and then in like 10 years there will be a <laughs> pirate ship going by that finds these people and then the mystery will be solved Right, right. And they like become pirates for a while. Yeah, that'd be yeah. kind of t- fucking tight. 
That's what I'm hoping for. If the survivors are out there on some sort of lost island scenario, like a CW show or something, like more power to you guys. That's what I hope happened. Yeah. If you're listening to this right now and you're on a deserted island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, stop listening to this. You clearly have internet. Call someone and let them know where you are because we need this to be solved. Well, Natalia, do you want to do our sign off? Yeah, okay, I'm trying to think of one. Um, BRB, gotta go message my crush on Facebook 97 times (laughs) to make sure that they notice me. (laughs) Perfect. All right, bye. My sources for this episode come from Wikipedia, a Reader's Digest article entitled 19 of the Strangest Unsolved Mysteries of All Time, written by Lauren Kahn, an article published by The Sun entitled Who Was Zahari Ahmad Shah by Guy Burchall, an article entitled MH370, Where Is It?, published on The Atlantic, a YouTube video entitled What Happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, uploaded by channel Real Life Lore. An article entitled Missing Malaysia Air- Airlines Plane, Fake Passport Holders Were Iranian, by Aran Marat. An article entitled MH370 Bombshell, Why Aviation Specialists Claim Plane Was Hijacked and Landed Here, by Callum Hoare. Also, I used timesofindia.indiatimes.com and an article written by John Lockett entitled Retreated into a Shell, MH370 Pilot's Wife Told How He Spent All His Time on His Flight Simulator and Stopped Talking to Her in the Weeks Before the Crash. Thanks for listening.